0: Welcome to Supply Chain Connections. I'm Brian Glick, founder and CEO at Chain.io. On this episode, we have Tim Weiss. Tim is the CEO at Optera Climate, one of many companies working to further our advancement towards a low carbon economy and CO2 emissions reductions. And we're going to spend some time here talking about balancing the incentives to do good in the boardroom versus how it sometimes feels in the real world and change management and all of these things other than just calculating your emissions and how they're going to drive real change. So I hope you enjoy the episode. Tim, welcome to the show. Brian, thanks for having me. So why don't we start with the basics? Give us a little bit about how you got into the industry.
1: I would say, yes, I might start all the way back. I went to college down in Colorado Springs at Colorado College. And when I started my undergrad, I was very much a bleeding heart and I wanted to focus my career in issues and areas that I cared about and I felt like I could help make a difference in. That quickly led me to exploring a lot of issues in relation to sustainability social justice other things and I found that climate in particular was an area that really melded my heart and mind very well I'm very much a data nerd and I love being able to use information and data and sciences to inform better decision making inform you know the way in which we as a species can improve so very quickly started focusing in on all issues in related to climate and I realized the nexus of the kind of global economy and market economy to how we're going to adapt to the low-carbon economy was an area that suited my skill sets well and my interests. So really had a number of different opportunities in undergrad to unpack that and unwind and what portion of this do I want to work on. That led me to working with an organization that helped set up markets for small-scale solar energy technologies in sub-Saharan Africa. So I went and lived in Namibia during college and after college. I was helping manage and set up their on-the-ground operations to expand how they were helping people who live without any access to electricity really find a way to power their lives with renewable energy. And I loved it. It was kind of my first start into what a startup might look like, but also in the area in the sector of sustainability and renewables that I cared a lot about that ultimately led me to. I took a detour as a teacher for a couple years and ultimately led me back to my now career, which is really post-business school. So back in business school in CU, I focused on all things climate and energy and sustainability and really focused on what portions of the market that I wanted to focus on. I worked in social impact for an accelerator called the Unreasonable Institute, helped people raise money, different entrepreneurs and investors and then i started working at aes in their commercial renewables division so i tried kind of large-scale utility solar and wind and found that the startup space was really where i loved being involved and met my co-founders around that time in 2016 and they had a boutique consulting business that was helping corporations manage their carbon emissions and we saw post paris agreement really a big shift of interest in this space A lot of companies starting to set more ambitious goals, think about how they were going to potentially reach net zero and felt that they legitimately had no clear path to just managing the information needed to make that sort of transition, let alone having a meaningful plan. And so we began bootstrapping, building a software off of this kind of consulting expertise that they had garnered over the last decade or so. And we released our MVP to the world and became a SaaS startup kind of around 2019. That's what brought me all the way through my early career into now Optera. So I wrote down a bunch of
0: notes of a bunch of different directions I want to take this conversation based on all of that. But where I want to start is there's a moment you're in school, you're in Colorado Springs, and for our international listeners, Who may not kind of understand the cultural references there. This is an area of our country known to be very sort of engaged with the environment and the outdoors and people who are, you know, very grassroots engaged in things. So you're there. And then at some point, you're in business school and you're, you know, you're working with a large corporate and you're, you know, doing these practical projects. And I was at an event last week put on by S&P Global for investors talking about the pressure that investors, like Citigroup is speaking, that they're putting on companies to do carbon reporting, where the investors are actually pushing for more regulation to have more disclosures and these things, as opposed to the kind of traditional sense of investors railing against regulation. What has it been like for you to have to live in both the worlds of kind of Grassroots impact, you know, let me see what I can do with my own two hands and this world of large corporate and investment and all of this regulation?
1: Yeah, I think that's a really good question and one that I think anyone that cares about any sort of environmental issues has to grapple with early on. And I think that the way I think about it is is this is an oversimplification, but there is the path of Greenpeace, right? Where you're essentially banging down the door of every company and you're trying to you know, shame them and and blame them into doing good things. And then there's the folks that are internal, who I work very closely with now. They're essentially our customers who are trying to solve things from within. I kind of reflected early on, I'd say, in my path in this and realized that given my natural inclinations and kind of how I communicate and how I like to operate in the world, I felt like my best service to the world and to the environment was to be inside was to help insiders do more. The way I talk about it with our team is that we're using the tools of capitalism to fix capitalism. And I believe that to be the most effective strategy for myself and for many, many people in this space. That being said, everyone who does what I do needs the other side. We need the people that are advocates. We need the people that are forward-thinking And so I would say I have a respect for the people that choose the more grassroots approach to environmental issues. I just realized early on that I'm better suited kind of being a part of boardroom discussions and helping drive decision-making at that level from within organizations rather than from the outside.
0: When you're in those boardrooms or, you know, talking to your customers, how would you characterize those conversations as far as the tone, right? Is this a Position of the people coming at this from fear, from opportunity, from like what's driving your customers
1: as a large group so we don't have to call any of them out. <laughs> yeah, it's interesting. So I've had a lot of conversations with kind of C level executives within either customers that we work with, your Fortune 500, Fortune 100 type companies recently. And ultimately, there is an appreciation and understanding that we are transitioning to the low carbon economy. It's not a if anymore. It's not a, is this a problem that we have to look at? It's really a conversation around how urgent is it and how urgent is it for my organization? And that's how businesses and business leaders are, I think, across the board are thinking about this, where they know they have to dedicate resources to this. They know they have to ultimately manage this new version of risk, which is climate risk. Like every business is exposed to it and they need to understand how exposed they are and what they need to do about it. What we find is that there are differing horizons that ultimately business executives have to make decisions against. There are more immediate pain points and then very long-term pain points from their vantage point. The concern I have is that because most C-level executives have to respond to more immediate pain points, climate is always the second or third priority on their mind after, you know, keeping their business afloat, hitting quarterly numbers, you know, competing in the marketplace. And so the level of urgency for some of the biggest climate challenges that organizations face, it's not going to be front and center until that horizon shifts enough. And you see it happening with Big chemical companies, I listened to the CEO of Dow Chemical and Eastman talk, I think it was last year, year before. Essentially, they were saying every new plant that they design and that they build for these massive chemical companies is under the pretense that this has to be producing product that's conducive to a low carbon economy. It's fundamentally based on recycled inputs or non virgin materials, it's based on non petrochemical based products. And I think that's what we're seeing is like long-term capital investment is being deployed in a way that's responsible because that's managing risk appropriately. But short-term and medium-term, folks aren't spending enough. They're not doing enough yet. The level of urgency isn't there, I would say. Everyone's being quite rational about this. Everyone is certainly bought in and understands the problem. But the level of urgency isn't quite to the point that it will be, I would say, in the coming years. And I'm hopeful it will be
0: and i think that there's in that level of urgency right it's not evenly distributed if i make steel for a living this is highly urgent highly regulated and if you know i'm the guy who runs the convenience store down the block you know i have less impact and less uh, i think transition risk is the term right so where does shipping and logistics and all that fit in uh, kind of on that scale every single
1: company that is Providing logistical services around the world, I think, is paying very close attention to this. They're either actively investing in alternatives or helping kind of build the market case for those alternatives that are still being developed. So I know that every big shipper is really paying attention and invested in sustainable aviation fuel. One of the largest logistics companies in the world has helped back this medium duty electric vehicle startup that's going to be using that platform for all of their medium duty package delivery, and all those kind of things. So what I see is that all the logistics companies I know of, you know, the big names, UPS, FedEx, Deutsche Bahn, you know, DB Schenker, all of them, they're all very attuned to the need to shift how they do what they do. I'd say that their problems are so challenging, they will take so long to fully unwind that I think that we're not yet seeing the full return on that from a carbon reduction perspective, but I'm hopeful that it will really start to pick up as this technology starts to be used. But obviously, sustainable aviation fuel is a ways out. Improvements in shipping. I mean, ultimately, right now, we see the biggest mechanism for decarbonizing logistics is mode shifting, is getting things out of planes and onto boats. We see a lot of organizations trying to work with their logistics providers to make that happen.
0: So I was going to ask you about actually that exact comparison, right, of Something like sustainable fuels versus something like mode shifting. Actually, this the exact two examples I was gonna use. Yeah. So perfect. We're well aligned. <laughs> One of those things involves very speculative new technology. The other involves everyone doing their jobs a little bit better. Mm-hmm. How much of that low-hanging fruit do you guys see out there of the things where you don't need to invent an autonomous truck or you don't have to invent, you know, a magic fuel that converts energy without
1: having to store it or something like that.
0: You know, like how much of this is just teaching companies to be better companies?
1: Yeah, I think of this in kind of two very broad phases when we think about decarbonization where, you know, we have seven years ish to cut emissions in half and the deployment and scale of some of the technologies that we're going to rely on for the low carbon economy, like sustainable aviation fuel, like thermal batteries, like kind of all the big things that are coming, they are not likely going to be deployed at scale during those first seven years, right? The next pivotal point that we are essentially buying ourselves, we're not even buying ourselves time, we're just mitigating damage to the planet. And so The solving that immediate problem is all going to be about doing business better, from my perspective. When you're mitigating risk, what you're essentially doing is operating in a way where you've squeezed all the efficiency gains out of how you operate today, and then you've bought enough time for us and the market economy and the planet to then be deploying the scalable big technologies that will remove the last 50% of emissions from how we operate. So in a lot of ways, we can't wait for that stuff or that stuff won't have a big enough impact to mitigate the damage that's been done. So I think investors and anyone who's consumers, folks that are you know, really paying attention to this information now, appreciate the fact that we need to see results now. And that's going to happen by kind of exactly to your point, by people just really deciding to do business more efficiently and operate more and more you know, effectively in, in the
0: world. So as someone who has a background in the transportation side of logistics, whenever I hear about mode shifting, I always instinctually start doing what I would say is not a positive behavior, but I start going, oh, I know that looks like a logistics person's job, but it's actually a buyer's job to actually buy the product on time so we don't have to move it to air freight. Right, Right? like when you're engaging with these companies and it's one thing to collect the data and, and, but when you start analyzing, it, you start talking to them, you have to become a change agent, right? For this, like how deep do you go with these companies to go, okay, you've got to go change your planning process or where do you guys draw that line?
1: Yeah, it's really interesting. And one thing I'd characterize is that our customer, I spoke to one of them last week and he had a really great way of putting it where he's like, Tim, I'm essentially the UN right i can get into any meeting i have no budget and i have no power so all i have is influence right and that's the sustainability function within big companies and so for us our job with our software and with our kind of complementary services team is to empower that you know un member to be as effective a stakeholder a communicator a leader for the organization as they can be because ultimately they are not going to be the one implementing solutions to your point. Like when you're thinking about logistics emissions, it all comes down to procurement and how they are managing and forecasting the needs of their business and how far out are they looking? How are they going to capacity plan and do all the things that they need to ensure that they have enough lead time to use boats and not planes. And our customer is not making that decision. They are trying to essentially convince procurement that this is a better way of operating. It will serve the business in achieving their net zero goals and also help them control costs and improve how they're performing. And so we're trying to be in this position of saying, how do we arm this change agent, to your point, with as much compelling, strong evidence as possible to do their job?
0: Do you think that's going to change? As a former CIO now, putting that hat on, there was a time when every CIO like magazine and these going back far enough that they were like these paper weeklies you would get, would talk about when is the CIO going to have a seat at the table, right? When is a CIO going to actually be considered a C-level executive and not someone who was just sort of given that title to shut them up, you know, or to illustrate a point to someone else, you know, and that did over a period of time change the fact that like conceptually, you know, everyone understands that technical role or many roles now in companies, have a lot of like real decision-making power, not just uh, influence over someone else's budget. Does the regulatory environment create an environment where these sustainability leaders are gonna
1: start having some real teeth because there's gonna be laws to meet? It definitely does. I think of the data security world as a pretty good example of how our industry is going to unfold. So I think it's a kind of a good example where Like, you know, the reason CIOs have a seat at the table now is because data theft and, you know, ultimately information security risk is huge risk to a business. It can kill a business. It can determine whether, yeah, whether you can function anymore or not. That will be true for climate. Ultimately, this new version of the economy is going to create a lot of winners and a lot of losers. And it's very core to how you operate. It's saying how coupled is the way in which you function your business with the production of emissions. We are now seeing those things being intertwined in how companies operate and that's increasing the leverage that ESG practitioners have. I think the best example is in Europe, we now have, it's the very beginning stages, but we now effectively have a carbon tax regime, you know, which is the carbon border adjustment mechanism. And it's going live, it's kind of just getting started this month and it's gonna impact all the heavy emitting commodities that are imported within the EU. And so now every steel, aluminum, cement making company in the world now knows that they're going to be judged based on the emissions intensity of the products that they sell. And it's going to impact their pricing. It's going to impact their ability to compete. And I see these sorts of things and regulation is helping, but it's based on a very core premise that investors are driving. And to your point, investors have always been driving this market is saying i want to know who's going to win and who's going to lose in this market and i want to make sure that we have our bets on the right companies and that puts esg and climate right front and center and it builds the credibility and builds the need for esg and climate programs across all big businesses
0: and yeah, i think specific to the shipping industry you know january 1st you know the ets taxes go into effect on the, the ships themselves too so you know, one of the things we've been starting to talk about is the ocean carrier is saying, okay, well, we're not just paying this, right? That, that's not how ocean carriers function, mm-hmm. uh, you know, so passing this fee along and the different steps along the journey from, you know, the ocean carrier potentially passing it to, you know, an intermediary, you know, like a DB Shank or like, uh, you know, a DSV, who in turn ultimately is passing it to the shipper and, you know, maybe less connected, but passing it along to the consumer, and that if you're in those intermediary positions, understanding it and being able to meaningfully talk about it and communicate it, both when you're doing your negotiations with your carriers and your negotiations with your customers, there's going to be some haves and haves nots based on who really knows what they're talking about. I don't know that there's a question in here, but I get really nervous for US-based companies who operate in those markets and have no education on this and are going to walk into you know, contract negotiations in the spring with carriers not knowing what this new charge even means.
1: Oh, totally. I think you're exactly right. And I think that like, companies now have a new lens to look at all of their suppliers and they say, all right, are you a risk for my decarbonization regulation and plans and all this stuff? Or are you going to be a partner? And that lens, like suppliers are gonna feel the most market pressure to adapt to the low carbon economy than I think anyone else will because it's rooted in what they sell. And they have to prove to their customer that they are not only a good supplier and a partner, but also producing a product that is helping that customer with their regulatory you know, compliance, with their decarbonization
0: commitments. So if we played that sentence back, to the 18 or 19 year old you who was in Colorado Springs and who had a spark to go help the world, that sentence probably isn't very compelling, right? Versus how it sounds in a boardroom. Mm Kind of how do you think or or kind of personally reconcile the excitement for doing the right thing with having to reframe it as a business objective?
1: Yeah. so. What I learned early in my career is that NGOs, nonprofits, are a beautiful thing. They are a great place to develop ideas and test viability of ideas. They are not a place to scale. To scale impact, to scale good things in the world, ultimately, it has to adhere to some version of the market economy. And I have kind of fully, I just fully understand the power of these tools now, and I can sleep well at night. And I think that these are tools that I would be more nervous if we had to rely on the moral compass of every human in the planet. That's a fair point. <laughs> I'm far more encouraged now that um, ultimately people's, you know, self-interest. And I mean, I sound like a total, you know, economist here and I'm not, but I believe that because climate is now becoming a core business problem, it might actually have a chance of being solved. Until then, I didn't believe it. And I think even my 19-year-old self started to understand that early on. That's promising.
0: <laughs> kind of as a wrap-up question, if there was something that you could get peers, your competitors, everyone on board to change, kind of what's the thing that frustrates you the most
1: it's an interesting question. yeah, I know you live in an environment of very high frustration all the time in climate change, but <laughs> <laughs> I mean, the thing, and I talk to this, I'm pretty actually open with our customers and everything. I think the thing that frustrates me the most is that there's a lot of attention paid to decarbonization and ESG issues. There is no money spent in it. The largest companies of the world still think they can fulfill their obligations or are still operating in a way where they think they can kind of hit their net zero goals or continue this process without spending that much money. And I think that that is coming to a head now, where they need real solutions, they need real direct data, we cannot rely on high level assumptions, high level things that you know, high level kind of data that's not actionable. And ultimately, quality costs money. And having real moving the needle in your business is going to cost money. And I'm concerned right now that how long we will live in this in-between, where commitments continue to be very high and very ambitious across every company you talk to, but the actual resources against those commitments are really, really negligible.
0: As someone who has personally really only gone deep into this space, say, in the last year, it blows my mind That that is a top, and I've heard it from other people, not just from you. But this idea of this lack of budget, like I, you know, I understand certain groups and areas and companies that don't have budgets. This one just absolutely breaks my brain. That this is an area where people are still fighting to have any budget, like that. I don't understand it.
1: (laughs) So it's really hard. I think it's really. I mean, and for me, like obviously, I care about it as someone who's running a business in this space. But ultimately, like. It's just kind of common sense that if you have companies making the most bold claims out in the world possible, saying, hey, we're going to reduce the emissions across everything that we do, our supply chain, our products, our operations, everything, and you're going to spend pennies a year on it. I think we all know that that just won't work. And I think they know, too. The problem is it's like we just have to turn the tide, like it's got to start getting solved. And we can't just have like two or three companies in the world really putting money towards this.
0: So let's flip the coin a little bit. What has
1: you excited? What's coming up? I think what I'm excited about is I think people just have more courage now than they used to to do big things. Like, I genuinely think that we have kind of ridden this path of our societal development for as long as we can. We all kind of understand that this isn't going to this is just a train to nowhere and that people are really being bold and willing to be bold. I think when you're looking at what's coming out of Europe right now, it's leadership. And what's coming out of California, the regulations there, like it's also leadership. What investors are saying and what they're asking for and saying, compelling companies to do bold and big things. Like I love seeing, and I'm sure you can relate to this, but like I love seeing real leadership in the world. I think it's the most powerful thing when people are vulnerable, put it out there and say, this is the right thing to do and we're going to do it. And I think that you're starting to actually see it. It's not just a one off situation like it used to be. And I'm encouraged by it. I think it's inspiring and I'm just hopeful that it's lasting.
0: So, if people want to learn more about Optera, learn more about you, kind of what's the best way to get engaged?
1: Website is opteraclimate.com. You can find me on LinkedIn. I'm Tim Weiss and all the things. I don't have the largest social media presence. So, nowhere else to really follow me meaningfully uh, LinkedIn's the only social media platform that exists anymore anyway
0: that we talk <laughs> about at least around here so yes yeah. <laughs> cool yeah no we'll make sure that those links are in the notes again you know thank you so much for being here and helping to educate us all on this where it's obviously goes without saying but it's an extremely important
1: topic well yeah Brian thanks for the conversation and yeah I hope this was in some way helpful to your listeners Thanks
0: again to Tim. That was so insightful and it's always great to talk to someone who can be open about their journey and really give us some context to how some of these news articles and very generic feeling things are actually playing out in boardrooms and in the real world. And we're gonna be having a bunch more content about CO2 and emissions throughout the rest of this year and next year, and I'm sure the year after on the Chain.io blog and on our LinkedIn. So in addition to making sure you follow up Tara, make sure that you are checking that out. We'll have the link in the show notes to everything that you need to subscribe to. And until next time, I'm Brian Glick, and thank you for listening.